This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. And we've got the wonderful, the incomparable Professor Dr. Wally Richards. Good morning, Wally. Good morning, Rodney. We've gone from calling you the gardening guru to the Professor Doctor. Yeah, yeah, well, uh, gurus are something from India. You know, they, they sit cross-legged, and at my age, I can't get my legs to cross so well. I was going to say, it's been a while since you sat on the mat cross-legged, Wally. Now, <laughs> we're going to do tomatoes and strawberries, but we've got a, a, a question from a listener, Bruce, and here it is. He's old school, so he's still calling you the guru, so I'll change guru in his email. I would like Rodney to ask his gardening professor doctor the following. I have grass grub through my veggie plots, flower beds, and obviously lawn. How can I get rid of it naturally without killing the plants and without having to change all the soil? Reasonably sized areas. Right. Okay. Now, before we start, Wally, how would I know that I have grass grub? Um. When you dig around and fossick around in the soil, you'll come across these little white grubs that uh, curl up into a, a, a curl when they're disturbed. Um, they're normally in the lawn. Grass grubs um, love eating the roots of grasses, and it's a native, in actual fact. Um, and... Years gone by before us Europeans came here and, and fouled all the bush and uh, grew grass everywhere so we could have sheep and cattle and stuff, um, the grass scrubs were fairly well controlled because they're only mainly eating the native grasses' roots, mm-hmm. right? But once we opened up the country to um, hectares and hectares of grass, of course, it's like anything – you give them lots of food, they populate and populate and populate. And so now um, they've been a, a big problem way and they, back. And they don't just stay with the grass. No, they can uh, go off and eat the roots of other plants as well. In the beginning, way back, DDT was used to control them, right? Mm-hmm. Later on, when DDT got banned, there was other chemical possibilities. But in a farming or in a playing field situation, you may recall in days gone by, you had a tractor with a great big concrete roller, enormous concrete roller on the back of the tractor, right? Mm -hmm. Remember that? Mm -hmm. I've never seen one in in recent times. But the reason for that was not to level the playing field, But when the soil was a bit on the moist side, the weight of that roller would squash the grass scrubs in the soil. (laughs) I didn't know that. That, that, That's how it it all used to happen. Now, in a farming situation in the paddocks, what the farmers used to do was they would get all their cattle, particularly the bulls and cows and so forth, and confine them to a small area where – the weight of them would actually press down and squash grubs in the soil. My goodness. So that was another way it was actually controlled after DDT. Nowadays, um, 
those two methods can be used, but more applicable to those circumstances. I presume there are some chemicals that can be used. In a lawn situation, my suggestion is when they're active, and, and this is important, it's when there are grubs there because they have a cycle. Like the grubs eat the roots of plants and at some point in time they reach their last instar uh, stage of development and then they'll pupate and they'll go deep in the soil to do that and then they'll emerge normally somewhere around about November, December period when conditions are nice as a beetle, a brown beetle, right? And that brown beetle um, will go out and you'll eat your passion fruit vine and your um, oh, lots of foliage. And in some cases, in countries' situations, at dusk, when these beetles emerge and fly, I've had reports that people thought it was a swarm of bees. There's just thousands of them. Wow. Right? And and then they come and devastate. They, everyone has a little chomp up on some foliage of preferred plants. And um, then, of course, they um, lay the eggs and start the cycle off again. So if Bruce wants to deal with them, he's got to get onto it. Yeah, it's, it's a real problem. There are some ways of dealing to it. In a situation when the beetles are on the wing, and I had one lady one time, she contacted me, and she just bought this property, and the previous owners had a large plantation of blueberries. And when she bought the property, her thoughts was, okay, at blueberry time, I'll harvest these blueberries and I'll sell them and that'll help pay the mortgage, right? Unbeknownst to her was grass grub, uh, beetle problem, right? And she rang me up in tears and she said, what can I do? She said, these blueberry plants have been eaten alive. I've got no income and... I thought to myself, you poor lady, you didn't know about the beetles. No. No. I don't know how she got on in the end, but um, at that point of time, there's very little could be done other than going out with um, pyrethrum and spraying them um, after dusk when they are landing on the plants. Pyrethrum, as used in fly spray, um, mm. can be um, a quick knockdown. But uh, when you're dealing with hundreds and hundreds of beetles, it's it's a plague, like biblical times. Yes. Oh, my yeah. goodness. So what I have suggested for people who are on lifestyle blocks, etc., or even in the home garden situation, when the beetles are on the wing, is to set up in a window a very strong light right, and underneath the window pane have a trough, like a wallpapering trough, in which you sit there and you half fill it with water and you float a little bit of kerosene on top of the water, right. You turn your light on 
coming up to dusk, the beetles and moss as well will be attracted to the light. They'll fly at the window, hit their heads on the window and drop down into the trough. And because of the kerosene, they can't get out. They're stuck there, right? So next morning, you can empty it out, feed them to the chooks if you've got chooks, or alternatively flush them down the toilet, get rid of them, right? Um, the light you would turn off again probably once the, the banging on the window stops. Mm. <laughs> it's a good indication. <laughs> There's no more. <laughs> and, and people that live um, in the country and even in town, like if you have a window there's a light inside and you haven't pulled the curtains, quite often at night you'd go bang against the window. Mm. It's not birds, it's beetles or moss. And you could deal to a plague like that? You'd kill a yeah. lot of beetles. You can, yeah, because they're going, particularly in a situation like that where there's no other lights to distract mm. them. Mm. With, with Grass scrub beetles, the worst aspect is people that have a street light outside the house. Uh. And that light attracts them to there, and then they will lay the eggs in the front lawn or thereabouts, right? And they'll have an ongoing problem every year. People that have night lights going all night attract the beetles and the moss. Um, so once again, when those things are on the wing, light is the attractor. And once they get to there. Now, there's also, remember in the old days, you went to the butchers and hanging up. Oh, those yellow strips. What was this electric thing, right? Oh, yes. Remember with a purple yes. light. Yes. And every and now and again, zap. And and splatter, and a fly would be splattered all over the meat. Of course, they're illegal now. They can't have them. There's <laughs> <laughs> more protein for nothing, you know. <laughs> <laughs> There's um, new versions of that, which are quite handy, neat, little compact units. The problem, of course, is uh, 230 operated, and you don't want them to be rained on or anything because that's not a very good thing to have happen. But in a sheltered uh, situation facing outwards or sometimes in a glass house, um, one of these things set up uh, in, on an extension cord, safely done so mm -hmm. the, um, the coupling doesn't get wet um, mm -hmm. and cause a problem. Um, but they will attract a lot of insects uh, at night time, and even during the day, in actual fact, uh, the ultraviolet light. Um, and what are they called, those lights, Wally? Well, I've got one sitting here. It's called Insect Killer, and the maker's Sanai, or Sansai. But go out on the internet. Um, you can bring them in from overseas, but I think mm. there's New Zealand ones. Um they're quite handy inside the house um, mm. for flies um, near some near the entrance, etc. But for beetles um, or moss outside, and of course the moss, you've got the problem with the um, grava moss, um, 
um, which is mainly in Northland, Auckland area, um, and only filtering down. It's a um, a beastie that eats uh, lays its eggs on all fruit. Codlin mice, for instance, is only attacks apples and pears and walnuts, but the grava moth is citrus, nuts, um, stone fruit, pit fruit, so they go all year round. Um, and then there's the other one up north too, which hasn't got down to me. Uh, they call it the army worm. My God. Have you heard of the army worm? Never. No, I've only heard of it this year, but it's been around for a while, and and the populations are built up. Once again, it's a moth who lays its eggs at night time on veggie plants, um, etc. And the reports that I've had back from a couple of people up north is like there's literally hundreds and hundreds of caterpillars all having a big munch up on, on people's plants um, from this moth who's laid the eggs. And there was a commercial grower and a hydroponic grower out of business because their crops are just completely devastated. My goodness. Oh, my so goodness. once again, my thoughts are a, a light trap to catch the moths before mm. they lay the eggs mm. is a damn good thing. And, and mm. all these pests, of course, come from um, the underarm bowlers in Australia. Of course. Yeah. Those filthy Australians. You're on Rattly Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We're talking to Professor Dr. Wally Richards, our, our gardening expert. You can give him a call on 0800 466464. You can email him at wallyjr at gardennews.co.nz. And remember the trick that Wally does to siphon out those that pay attention from those who don't. Garden News has only one N. Think about mm. it. Figure it out. Now, Wally. What could Bruce do? Is there anything he can do while there are grubs in his garden and in his lawn? Right, okay. Now, the grubs eat roots, so that, that's the key to the whole thing. So what we can do is when you plant your plants, you put Wally's neem tree powder in the planting hole, right? The neem properties from that will get into the root system. After you've planted your plant, you put neem tree granules which are bigger particle size. The only difference between powder and granules is the particle size. The granules can be quite big chunks, so a bit awkward putting them in the planting hole where the powder is nice. And then the chunks on the so top of the soil, the neem properties leach down and get into the root system of the plant. And then when the little grass grub or wire worm or whatever in the soil eating the roots, um, have a munch on the roots, they get some neem in their gut, they stop eating, starve to death. End of story. Perfect. Simple as that, right? Can you can you put that on your grass? Yes, but the powder, once again, for the okay. grass, um, because um, when you mow the lawn, you've got to be a little bit careful because particularly with a rotary mower, it will suck up the chunks, right? Okay. So the powder, ideally. So for grass scrub in the lawn, which are probably active at the moment, um, yeah, yeah, they could be quite easily active at the moment. The best way to find out is you cut a square with your spade in the lawn and lift the turf, 
right? Yeah. You turn it over and you have a look on both sides. Is there any of the white grubs curling up? If there is, and there's quite a few of them, and I'm talking like half a dozen, dozen or more, well, then it's worth treating. If there's yep. one or two, probably doesn't make much difference. Okay. Where people have problems in the lawn with grass scrub is where there's nightlight attracting them, right, or where there's been an infestation and a problem the year before mm. because the beetles tend to return to where they emerged from unless they're attracted away by light, um, and lay the eggs back where they used well, to be. Well, that seems rather a neat fix because uh, you can deal to it. You can deal to them when they're grubs. You can deal to them when they're adults and they're beetles. And if you deal to them, um, you'll have uh, much less of a problem next year if you have one at all. Now, tell me, uh, Wally, would you need to apply that neem powder more than once to your lawn? No, because it's only seasonal. Okay. So once you know there's grass scrub there, apply the powder. Now, ideally the soil should be moist, yes. right? And then you and you mow the lawn, so not scalp it, but you know, mow it fairly short, right, so that the powder can get down. And then you give it a light watering to wash it off the foliage to get it onto the soil. Mm -hmm. And if you've got a roller, by chance, you roll it because that will press the powder into the soil, right? Mm. If you don't have, and it's sitting on top of the soil and you've got a rotary mower, it would pay, rather than put the catcher on and collect the clippings, is to actually let the clippings go back on the lawn because yeah. any powder would be just recycled back onto the lawn. Yeah. It looks a little bit untidy, but I'm always amazed because I, I don't use a catcher on my lawns and it looks a bit, you know, not very nice for a few days, but within a week it's all gone. Mm. It's so quick. It gets and you've absorbed kept the back in. You've kept the nutrients. Yeah, it, it feeds back into the grass itself. The only problem is over a period of time you get a thing called thatch. Now, thatch is a debris that builds up on the soil surface right, in your lawn. And when you walk on the lawn, it feels spongy like a carpet. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not good for the grass and it's not good for um, water getting away and so forth. So ideally, if you build up thatch on the lawn, you should get rid of it. We do have a product called Thatch Buster, which is a food that you spray on the lawn and it goes down and it feeds the microbes that are there, builds up their population, and they eat up the thatch. Mm. And they will, with the aid of the Thatch Buster building their populations, they will eat an inch of thatch in a month. <laughs> My God. And that converts it back to real good food for the um, yeah. grasses. Isn't that great? Isn't nature amazing? Now, that's Bruce's grass grub uh, problem taken care of, we hope, Bruce. Tell us about tomatoes and strawberries this time of year now. Okay. Well, with tomatoes, one of the most important things when you plant your tomato plant is to realise that 
the plant can root all the way up the trunk, right? So you plant it deep. Mm. It's the only plant that I'm aware of that you plant deep. If you plant a lot of plants deep beyond where they would normally um, be growing out of the pots or out of the punnets or whatever, um, chances are they'll rot at the um, junction where they're underneath the soil. You can't do it with um, the grafted tomatoes because they're grafted, but with an ordinary tomato, up to those first true leaves, right? So you've got several inches or two or three inches of trunk that's going to be planted in a deeper hole. Now, it will root up all the way up there, mm. right? Mm. And as a result of that, um, they'll have a bigger root system, and having a bigger root system means more food, bigger plant, better tomatoes. Well, I've got a wee admission to make, Wally, and I knew that, and I grew my seedlings. I planted 12 seeds, and I got 10 little tomato plants, and when they're about an inch high, I planted them into my um, tunnel house. I have to say they're doing rather well. I've got to keep the water up to them, so almost they almost grow in front of my eyes. If I don't see them for a couple of days, I get quite a shock. But I didn't bury them down to that first leaf because I had forgotten what you told me. Oh. Should I dig them in a bit deeper or pile up a mound around them? Yeah, you can mound up. Now, you possibly notice too, later on the plants are bigger, they get little bumps on the trunk. They are actually the beginnings of aerial roots. Yes. Ah. So you could mound up to those or mound up around, and sure enough, it will produce those roots and they'll be in the mound. It will be much better to mound up because it might mean disturbing the roots that are there, eh? Yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. And – that is amazing to remember about, about about your tomatoes. And should you stake them when you first plant them out or wait till they get a bit taller? The aspect of sticking a stake in uh, next to a plant, um, you're going to damage some roots, which yep. is not a bad thing, really. Um, really staking is when they are larger and you're going to support them because the fruit, of course, is heavy once the fruit develops and um, it needs some support. Now, if, if you're growing tomatoes, which are like a kilo per tomato, some of the giant ones that you got, mm-hmm. I remember it always amused me. In Blenheim, um, a chap advertised in the paper for – uh, old bras, particularly big cup bras, because he <laughs> wanted to support these monstrous tomatoes that he was growing, and and he found that a bra was perfect slim. <laughs> he was off to the AMP show with the biggest tomato in a bra. Yeah, and a bra still around it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! So, um. Now, laterals. No, no, let me get back to the staking. 
Okay. Do I stake them when they're little or do I wait till they grow a bit? Do I, um, when do I put the stake in? When's best to put the stake in? I'm thinking you, I need to put the stake in now. Ideally, probably you put the stake in at the time that you plant them. Okay. Right. And what my wife has normally got these stakes from Bunnings that have like a circular thing on them and she feeds the vine up through the circular thing is that a good idea yeah, or are you yeah. better that good no that's that's okay it's support yeah so uh it's supporting the plant as it's growing up it grows up in the spiral and and the foliage goes out and it's got something to rest on and that's that's good value okay now back to laterals okay laterals uh side shoots that come out from between the trunk and the leaf, right? Now, if you let them grow, you end up with a massive, um, dense plant because all of those become another plant, mm. literally living off the parent. And it means that the fruit size will be smaller but you'll have a lot more of it, right? And the problem, of course, is you're going to have to support those laterals later on once they get a bit of size. It becomes, in my experience, when my wife's done it, a total mess. Yeah. The arto's falling over on the ground, they're shaded, they get wet, and you've just got a big mess of plant and tomato, and they're not tidy. No, no. So ideally... When the little laterals come out and they're, they're big enough, you just pinch them off. Now, there's a very big danger here, particularly in a glasshouse situation, but it can happen outdoors as well, that when you pinch them off, you create a wound. Mm -hmm. And if it's humid with ample moisture in the atmosphere, botrytis can get into that wound because it's carried on the moisture and then it will go down the trunk somewhere and set up shop, which is collar rot. So what happens later on, you start to notice that your plant um, at the top is starting to wilt during the day. It, it might come right later on, but it will progressively wilt more and more because what's happening as the collar rot develops it's cutting the roots off from the top. Mm. And so the top dies, literally, because it's got nothing from down below. When you remove laterals, it should be dry. You haven't just watered and recently. Um, the atmosphere is dry. And ideally, in a little trigger sprayer, you have a bit of liquid copper made up and you just give it a squirt. Mm. So you protect the wound. When you say you pinch it, is that sounds technical. That means you just put your thumb and your forefinger together yep. and twist it. And and pinch, pinch it out. Yeah. Pinch it out. And yep. so you use that rather than scissors or a knife. Um, there's an old um story that you should never put steel to a plant. Okay. And scissors or a knife and so forth, secret tears, et cetera, et cetera. Unless it's made of copper, of course, and then it's allowed. 
Is that an old story that you subscribe to? There's some truth in it, in Mm. actual fact. Um, Iron, in fact, I wrote an article one time about um, a case in a country overseas in medieval times where the king was really concerned about why his farmers weren't producing the same amount of um, produce from their crops as the neighbouring country next door, and they sent, he sent this guy out to discover the reason, and it was because his farmers were using iron ploughs, mm. naughty, where the other farmers were using copper ploughs, oh, and the okay. difference changed the structure of the soil and the amount of moisture retention. Oh, there you go. Oh, well, I won't yeah. argue with you, Wally. I'll pinch. Can those laterals be planted? Yes. So if you let them grow and they get about, um, say, two or three inches long. Yeah, 75, <laughs> 75 millimetres, yeah. Ah, there you go. Um, I, I have to get my ruler out and yeah, look yeah, at yeah, it. Yeah, 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 50 um, to 75 millimetres. Yeah, so you can strike them as another plant. No trouble at all. Um, they're quite easy to do. And Do you put them in water or straight into your soil? Ideally, either way, uh, okay. just what you prefer. Oh, that would be fun because then um, you'll get your tomatoes at different levels coming through the season. Yeah. Yeah, and those plants, of course, can be grown on for your second crop, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Um, so removing laterals is fairly important. Protecting the wound is important. Interestingly enough, I've learned that in a commercial glasshouse tomato growing situation, that even removing the fruit in the humid situation they lose about 20% of their crop through botrytis getting in to where they've taken the fruit off. So you should spray that, with, spray that with a bit of copper too. Yeah. Or it, like with the tomato plants, once the plant gets up a metre or so high, I like to remove the bottom leaves, right? And yeah. I just snap them off once again. Yeah. You don't pinch them, you snap them off. <laughs> <laughs> All these technical terms, Wally. Yeah. It's like How do I snap it compared to pinching it? Well, just if you lift, lift the leaf up or down, it'll, it'll just break off. It'll okay. snap off, right? Got it. I got the snap, I got the pinch, yeah. Right. Once again, you don't do it when it's humid yeah. uh, in a dry situation or use your copper spray to protect. Um, those bottom leaves will... If there's any insect pests around, they'll be harbouring the insects on them. So by taking the leaves off progressively, you're removing a lot of your problem, right? Mm. And when you take the leaf off, ideally put it into a plastic bag and seal it because if there's a whole lot of insects on it, you don't want them getting out. No. Right? So it also means later on too with spraying, um, there's less plant to spray. Mm. if you're having to spray for either disease or pests. But aren't you contradicting yourself because you were telling me on another session that your leaves were your solar panels mm-hmm. and generating the energy. And if I'm removing leaves, I'm, aren't I getting less energy into my plant? Yes, but then again, you've got a lot of new leaves up the top and it's always producing new leaves. Okay. 
So it's balancing out, and you can find sometimes, particularly with um, virus or insects, that those bottom leaves get quite curled, gargled, not nice, and they're not producing much anyway. Mm. So, and there's also the old aspect that um, you've got a lot of green uh, tomatoes on your plant, they're not ripening, you want to get some light onto them, and then you remove some foliage to let the light in to ripen the fruit. Got it. Do I have, how do, do the tomatoes need to be pollinated? No, they are self-pollinating, like you don't have bees or anything doing it. Yeah. Um, in a glasshouse situation, you need to go out on a sunny day, and even outdoors is a good idea to do this. On a nice sunny day, it means that the flowers are out, they're producing pollen because of the sunlight, and you tap the plant to make it mm -hmm. vibrate, mm -hmm. right, or tap the stake to make it vibrate. The vibration actually moves the pollen across mm. and sets the fruit. You were telling us that funny story about the Chinese market gardener with the big glass house that had the coke in the in the floor, and he had them tied up with string, and he could give it a bang, and the whole lot of them would vibrate, right? Right, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. All so I, I remember some things you teach me, and I got to remember um, I do some silly stuff in my garden, Wally. I'll share one with you. I've been eating lettuces um, out of my tunnel house. Oh, my goodness. It is such a pleasure to go and harvest a lettuce and bring it home and put it in a sandwich, which I do love with uh, Marmite, not Vegemite, Marmite. And lots of butter, and also um, salads already from my tunnel house. But I noticed that there was mm, a bit slimy inside the lettuce. And my wife looks at me and she says, When you water these, do you just spray the water on the lettuce? I say, Yes, of course I spray it on the lettuce. She says, All the water is getting stuck in the leaves. She said, You've got to water around the lettuce a, 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 a bit. So that was something that I didn't know, Wally. Yeah. Um, because of your closed atmosphere in the tunnel house, if it's outside, of course, that would just dry out uh, yeah. much quicker. Th there is another problem, which um, with hearting lettuces in the summertime, they need to be actually not in full sun. They need a more shaded situation because they will actually cook in the sunlight, and the heart of the lettuce will be all slimy. Ah. It's called slime heart or something. I forget the technical term for it, but it's caused by um, too much sun on the lettuce and cooking it. And lettuces are a big leaf plant, so they need light, but they don't need a lot of direct sunlight. And so, so in that situation, would you cover them with a bit of cloth or something? If, if they were in a full sunny situation in summertime, um, yes, a bit of shade cloth would be ideal to keep them happy um, or plant them in a place where it's only morning sun or late afternoon sun, mm. not all day full-on sun. Well, down here in Otago, my lettuces are going to cook and there's no shade, so I better invest in some shade cloth. Anything else about tomatoes wally that we need to know 
food. food. Right. Now, first of all, particularly in your glasshouse tunnel house, whitefly is a big problem, and feeding the plants. A lot of tomato foods that are out there available lack in potash. There's some potash, but not enough, right? <laughs> so the results are that people don't really get um, good crops. I have my own secret tomato food, which I think I mentioned before. Yes. Now, did I tell you the story about how that came about? No. There was a chap that lived in Field, and he's now passed. Um, his name is Ford, right? And he came to my garden centre one time, and he said, look, you've got all these tomato foods here. Which is the best tomato food? Because I've tried a lot, they're no bloody good. I said, really? Okay. That's why I'm selling them. He said, can you find out what would be the best tomato food? So, okay, I said. So I went and consulted some experts and fertilisers and things like that, and we came up with Wally's secret tomato food, right? Now, the secret of it basically is it's got a lot of potash in it, right? It's got the nitrogen, it's got all the rest of the house your fathers, but it's more potash, right? People who use it, they come back to me and say, oh, my God, the best tomatoes I've ever had, right? And now this guy, <laughs> I gave him some after I made it up, before I started marketing it, and I said, here, go and try this. He came back to me, he said, that's excellent. This guy was so fastidious that he could tell the difference of the flavour of fruit, tomato fruit, if they were water with chlorinated water or not. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. He he, he, he must be one of these guys, you know, like yeah, a chef. They've so got yeah. really good taste buds and they can distinctly yeah. tell the difference. Yeah. Me, I, I just eat. Yeah. <laughs> And and now, correct me if I'm wrong, potash is what comes out of your wood burner. Uh, potash, yes, uh, it is. Um, so wood ash is potash, hence yeah. the name potash. Um, so that can be used. It's it's not very strong and it should be fairly fresh, which is a problem because you're probably not burning much wood in the middle of summer yeah. when you need it. Um, it can be stored dry. Um, but Wally's Secret Tomato Food, and we add to that neem tree granules or powder, right? Mm -hmm. Now, in a glasshouse situation, your worst problem is whitefly by far, right? And once they get established um, during the season, no matter how much you spray, you, you've always got a problem, right? It's ongoing. You touch the plants and up come clouds of these adults off there and there's thousands of nymphs feeding on the plants, taking all the goodness out of them and so forth. So it's, it's dismal. If you start the season off right and you put um, Wally's um, secret tomato food, a little bit of that with the neem powder in it, in the planting hole, so some in, down there, for the roots, and you sprinkle some on top of the soil, the neem itself creates a smell which helps disguise the smell of the tomato plant. Mm -hmm. So white fly flying by can't smell your plants in your glasshouse. 
It works to a point outside, but not quite so well because you haven't got a closed atmosphere. Yeah. Also, for whitefly, ideally, the yellow, sticky whitefly traps, which you put up uh, near your door, near your vents and so forth, so any incoming attracted to the yellow, sticky trap, and they get stuck on that. So most important to have that. Between the two things and removing bottom leaves and and so forth off the plant when they get bigger, you can have a relatively good season free of a lot of white fry problems. Right. Great. That's tomatoes, Wally. Now, so my big drive is to get some of your secret tomato food, and I've got my strips up. Um, and I'll put my steaks in. Now, onto my strawberries. Tell right. me about strawberries. Okay. As we spoke earlier, and it's a fact that this season, there's not much strawberry plants around for people to buy um, because of the floods and et cetera, et cetera. Growers got wiped out and lost a lot of their plants. The old plants from previous seasons, I've had strawberry plants. I've kept them going for three or four years. My goodness. Um, that, that, they get to the point where they can become too big and clumpy, and they still produce a bit. But, uh, of course, the runners that they create during the um, time in which the fruiting finishes and they create runners, they're good because they're new plants. But ideally, Microsyn, a product that we have called Microsyn, is you mix that up with your water and you spray the foliage regularly, which means every week or twice a week. <laughs> it's a food for the um, plants and it's also a food for the microcilium fungi and the beneficial microbes in the soil. People tell me, and I see this myself, I go and spray my strawberry plants with it and then a day or so later, I'm going, oh, my God, they've grown. They do. They respond for it incredibly well. Because they're a woodland creature, they normally live in wood forest circumstances. They don't like full sunlight too much. Um, but they can handle it. They prefer um, a reasonable amount of sunlight, particularly to ripen the berries. But if you... Spray microsin over the plants and starting now and carry on weekly at least through the season. And once you made the stuff up in a trigger sprayer, just leave it sitting next to where the plants are yes. and grab it, go past, spray, 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 away you go, right? I guarantee you'll increase your crop by at least 400%. No. Yeah. No trouble at all. Oh, i got to get onto my order. Okay. Wally, what else about <laughs> strawberries that I need to know? Okay, I'll tell you a story about Microsoft. There was a commercial grower who didn't read the instructions, right, how much per litre. He used a lot more. He ended up with strawberries so bloody big that his boxes that he puts them in to sell were too small. He had to get another <laughs> boxes <laughs> to accommodate the size of these great big berries. My goodness. 
My goodness, isn't that amazing? Now, strawberries, tomatoes, what else should we be doing in the garden about this time? Oh, well, planting um, everything except for heat-loving plants such as it's a bit early for cucumbers, um, zucchinis, etc. unless you're in a glass house or sheltered situation. Mm-hmm. Um, cucumbers, if you plant a cucumber now, it will sit and sulk, unless it's in a glass house. <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Dying here. Um, Keep with us, Wally. Keep with us. Yeah, stay alive a bit longer. Write another book. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, outside, um, because temperatures are not evenly warm yet, they're up and down. Uh, but brassicas, silver beet, um, seeds, carrots, all those sort of things. Get stuck in and, and get your veggies going. What about asparagus? I've got a hankering after asparagus. Asparagus is a long-term crop. And, yeah, you can make an asparagus bed. Um, you're not really harvesting much for the first few years, but oh. each year. It's going to get better. Okay. In fact, I think the first year uh, when they send up their ferns, and they call them ferns actually, um, you, you don't actually, uh, the spears that come up, you let them go to fern, right? Yeah. So it gets much sunlight, develop the root system better and better, right? Yeah. The hungry plants, um, you make up a bed, say, a metre by a metre square, um, put lots of manure in, all that good stuff that you've got. You you buy some crowns. Now, the trouble is you don't know if the crowns are male or female. Oh. And it's the males you want because they're the ones with spears. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Wally, okay. (laughs) Yeah, okay. The female um, ones, which will flower later on, and produce the berries, um, you usually pull them out and get rid of them. So you only need the male ones? Yeah, yeah. You so don't need don't... Any, any. Okay. Because you're not looking for seeds, you're looking for spears. So the spears are the growth. So when you buy the crowns from the store, you are 50-50 male-female, but you don't know until they grow what which ones they are. Yeah. And so because they grow for years – you want a dedicated area of your garden, and that's your asparagus bed. Right. And in the winter time when it's dormant is when you go out and you collect seaweed and you put that over the bed along with animal manure, et cetera, et cetera. You really shove the food in when they're dormant. And then in the spring, of course, when they come away, up come the spears in which you harvest when they're a nice size. And the first year... You don't harvest any, you let it grow uh, and establish. The second year, you might have a small harvest, uh, but not much. Uh, it's really years three, four or so before you're starting to really um, get a, a good crop to harvest. Well, that will test my patience. 
Um, but I might get into that because I need to put a dedicated bed in. I might do that uh, next year because, as you say, we've got to get gardening, Wally, don't we? We've got a lot of stuff to put in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. everything now. And I find the asparagus in the can is very nice. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking with Wally Richards. He's our Professor Doctor of the Gardening World. You can call him on 0800 466464. You can email him wallyjr@gardennews1n.co.nz. at He loves taking calls. He loves getting emails. He loves getting orders. And he's very, very helpful if you have any complaint about your garden and you're not quite sure what to do. Professor Dr. Wally Richards will put you right. Wally, it's always a pleasure. You have a great day in your uh, gardening and in your warehouse, sorting out your orders. Um, And thank you for your time. Lovely. Pleasure. You're on Reality Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Thank you for listening. I'm going gardening. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m.